Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I have always been fascinated with my heritage. So I thought I'd share with you a little bit of, of my personal heritage. This is the Fisher side of my family. On the left here is Bayless Fisher, my great-great-grandfather with his two brothers and his sister. And then here's Bayless with his wife and a few of their children. And you know, I see this picture and I say to myself, Phil Robertson, step aside. Meet Bayless Fisher, right? This is the Fisher side of my family. Uh, this is my uh, mom's side, the, the Nelson side of my family, and the smallest child in each of these pictures is uh, my grandparent, each of my grandparents. So on the left there is my grandfather, Axel Theodore Nelson, and then on the right, the smallest child standing in front of her dad is my grandmother, Bertha Sophia Force. And, um, you know, I look at these pictures and... Uh, they fascinate me, and they seem, in a sense, um, so distant, so, so different from me. I look at these people, and the, you know, they wore different clothes, they ate different food. Uh, for these folks, they, they spoke a different language. They didn't even speak English initially. They had to, to learn this language, and they seem so very different from me, and, and yet, this is where I came from. You know, this is my heritage. These are my, these are my roots, and to really understand who I am, I, I have to understand, in a sense, who they are and, and the decisions and the choices they made, because choices that they made really influenced who I became. In particular, uh, the Swedish side of the family, these, these courageous Swedes who were willing to leave a familiar culture and leave all of their family to go to a land where they didn't know the language, <laughs> they wouldn't immediately fit in. And yet they made these choices, and these choices affected and influenced my very existence as a person. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to trace our roots, not individually uh, and not racially or culturally, but more importantly, spiritually. Where did we come from as a believing community? We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of the church. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the very birth of the church. And we're going to study where we came from so we can understand who we are and why we're here. So I want you to read with me in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Church was born on the day of Pentecost. The distinguishing mark of the church is the indwelling, empowering, life-giving Spirit of God. So what do we know about the Spirit of God? What do we know about the Holy Spirit? It's been said that the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. Right, frequently I hear people talking about the Spirit as an it. The Spirit's not an it. The Spirit is a person. Okay? The Spirit is person. Spirit is personal. Spirit has personality. Uh, Star Wars sent our theology back millennia, right? It's not a force, but a person. And Spirit's not a form of God, but a person within the Godhead. It's not as if God is one and God shows up in different forms. Sometimes he shows up as Father. Sometimes he shows up as Son. Sometimes he shows up as Spirit. No, the Spirit is a unique person within the Godhead. There's Father, there's Son, and there is Spirit. All three co-eternal, co-equal, always existing, 
always God, but unique in their personhood and in their personality. This is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent by God at unique points in human history to move events and to move people to shake things up and to move history in a brand new direction. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is an important day. It's an important day because the Spirit shows up. And there are three signs that accompany the presence of the Spirit. There's a sound, there is a sight, and there is speech. Read with me again verse 2. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. First, what we observe is not that wind came, but a noise came. It wasn't wind, but it was noise. And the noise was like a violent rushing wind. Everyone inside your house, when a storm blows in and you're not feeling the wind, but everything's shaking. Right? I've been in those kind of storms. This is not a little storm. It is a violent rushing wind that is sounding outside. They don't feel it, but they hear it. Remember when I was living in Dallas, I was... Uh, pretty poor. I was going to graduate school. I was going to seminary. Didn't have much money. And I also happened to be very cheap. And so I found a place to live uh, where I only had to pay $50 a month rent. And the landlord actually paid for my utilities. Isn't that awesome, students? Wouldn't you love to have a place like that? Well, here was the catch. It was, it was in uh, Dallas near Fair Park. It was in a really, really, if you're from Dallas, you know where the story's going. It was in a really, really rough neighborhood. It was a, just outside of the historical district, right? about a half a block outside the historical district. And so the woman who owned the house, she wanted me to live there so that people wouldn't keep breaking in, <laughs> right? Keep it safe. It was on an alley. It was a beautiful home. We had huge rooms, wood, wood floors, high ceilings, beautiful place, but it was off of an alley and it was surrounded by... Uh, really rough neighborhood. And we had three bars that kind of surrounded us all around. And so beginning on Thursday night, the music cranked, right? And it would start about eight o'clock and it would go till two o'clock. And so one of the prices that I paid, I paid low rent, but I didn't sleep. Right? And so when the music would start Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, man, our, the whole house would shake, right? I'm not feeling wind, but boy, I'm feeling the power, right? I'm feeling the bass is going boom, boom, boom. And the windows literally are going rattling like that, just rattling. And what happens here on the day of Pentecost is things just start to rattle. And apparently there are people out on the street and people in their homes, and it is so earth shaking that they've got to come out and see what in the world is going on here. And apparently they observe a sight. The apostles have been in a room and they hear the shaking and they hear the rattling and they come out and tongues as of fire, not fire itself, but something that appears as fire falls down upon these 12 men and then they begin to speak. But they're not speaking in languages that they know. They're speaking in languages that they don't know. And they're speaking intelligently in languages that they've never studied, that they've never learned, that they've never spoken before. And it's a miracle. And it grabs people's attention. Notice the response. Verse 6. The crowd was bewildered. Verse 7. They were amazed and astonished. They were literally beside themselves. Verse 12, they were continuing in amazement and great perplexity. 
What in the world is going on here? Read with me in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own languages, our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. That's not unusual, remember, in Jerusalem to hear foreign languages. That's not an unusual thing. What we have gathered here together are Jews from all over the entire Roman Empire. Luke begins describing them. They're from the region of Mesopotamia where the original 10 tribes of the the northern 10 tribes of Israel were scattered. So through uh, Mesopotamia into Asia Minor, North Africa, Judea, even Rome, people from Crete, Arabs. So all around the known world, but all Jewish. We're told all Jewish and all devout men. That word for devout is actually also applied to Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. These are men who are seeking after God. They are at Pentecost because it was one of the feasts that they were commanded to attend. And so they come expectantly wanting to worship God, Jews from all over the region. And they are not surprised in a sense to hear foreign languages because Jerusalem was a a metropolitan place. I mean, it was a a diverse place. And they know when they come in for this festival, there'll be people from all over the world. So it's not the languages themselves, but what they recognize immediately is these are Galileans. And Galileans typically aren't the smartest people on the planet. (laughs) How is it that they possibly know our language? And these 12 Galileans, mostly uneducated in a formal way, begin speaking in all of the languages from all of the regions. I want you to notice that this spiritual gift, this outpouring of the Spirit, is described by a metaphor, the tongue, because the tongue is the organ of speech. But it's a language, it's a real language. But it wasn't necessary for the purpose of communication. They stay with me here. This spiritual gift was not necessary for the purpose of communication because these people scattered, these Jews, devout Jews, scattered everywhere, they knew lots of languages. Almost certainly, every one of these Jews spoke three languages. And not like Americans, right, who only speak American. (laughs) They spoke Aramaic, which was the trade language of the East. It was the common language that Jew spoke to Jew. So they knew Aramaic, they knew Greek, trade language of the West. They knew their local language. They probably knew multiple dialects. These are people who are multilingual. And so what happens is these languages erupt and they hear great things of God, God's mighty works in their own languages. And then Peter quiets everyone down and he speaks in one language and everybody gets it. 
In other words, all of these different languages were not required for the purpose of communication. Peter just speaks in one language, probably Aramaic, possibly Greek, and everybody understands. The real miracle, in other words, on this day is not tongues. That's not the real miracle. Tongues was an attention getter. Right? He grabs their attention, and he does. He grabs their attention, and these three signs, so sound and sight and speech, all serve to validate that the Spirit is present, so you should listen to what these men are about to say. You better listen. Which raises the question, should we expect to be speaking in tongues in the church today? To which I say, I don't know. Maybe. Spirit can do whatever the Spirit wants to do, Right? That's the Spirit's prerogative. What we do see in the book of Acts is every time the church, the message of the gospel, breaks into a new region, that's where we see miracles occurring. We see it in Samaria first. Wow, remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth? We see it in Samaria. Then we see it Cornelius, first Roman convert. We're going to see it again in Ephesus. But we don't see these things all of the time. We see it when the Spirit chooses to have these outpourings of the Spirit, particularly when the church is breaking into new territory. But can the Spirit do what the Spirit wants to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've often wondered, what would it be like if that happened amongst us on a Sunday morning? I would be scared. (laughs) The reason I'd be scared is because I would feel like I didn't have control which is probably a really good thing for us, church. I've seen a few moments where the Spirit has broken out and there's been incredibly deep conviction on a group of people. And it is a frightening thing. It's a powerful thing. The convicting work of the Spirit comes upon a group and they must confess and get right with God. The Spirit can choose to do what the Spirit wants to do at any point, at any time. In this moment... The Spirit breaks out through the apostles. And again, tongues is not the miracle, really. It's a, it's a miracle, but it's not the big miracle. The big miracle is that lives are about to be transformed. This outpouring grabs their attention and it validates the message that is about to occur. It's validation. It's demonstration that the Spirit, in fact, is the one who is speaking. Now, I, I've told you this story before, I think, um, was really one of my evangelistic highlights. Okay, one of my you know, best of moments. I was sitting on a plane and I was talking with a, a gentleman about the gospel. But he didn't really want to talk about the gospel. He wanted to get real philosophical with me and he really kind of wanted to change the subject. And so he began being saying, you know, how do you know that anything that's happening right now is actually real? How do you know that, that you're not just a part of my dream or that I'm a part of your dream? How do we know anything is real whatsoever? How do you validate anything at all? And I sat there for a minute and I thought, and then I reached over and I punched him on the arm really hard. And some of you think he's just making that up. No, I really did. I really, I just went, bam, and I just punched him really hard. And I said, did that hurt? He goes, ah. I said, did it really hurt? <laughs> I said, you feel pretty real to me. <laughs> His wife just laughed. She thought that was so funny. She'd been putting up with this mumbo jumbo, right, for decades. <laughs> and I said, let me just validate that you exist so we can talk about something real. This is what the Spirit does. And they're stunned. They're amazed. They go, what in the world does this mean? What does it mean? The Spirit shows up in a powerful way. 
and validates the message that's about to be delivered. Now, why was this so critical? Why was the validation critical? I'm going to give you three reasons. First, because this is new revelation for Israel. Read with me chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, and he declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter goes back to Joel chapter 2 and he says, this is that day. At least this is the beginning of those days. And really, the beginning of those days started with the crucifixion. The sky was turned to darkness. And it continued on through Pentecost, where the Spirit of God is poured out upon God's people. They begin to proclaim the word of God. This is, Peter says, the end of days. Really, it's the beginning of the end of days. God is intervening in human history, and he's taking us, in a sense, right to the edge, to the day of the Lord. Okay, church, that's where we stand now, right at the edge, right at the day of the Lord. If you imagine that the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on earth and fulfill all promises begins with that process of the day of the Lord, that could happen at any moment. It's as if we, we've walked to the edge of the cliff. There's a chasm before us. It's the day of the Lord. It's the restoration of all things. And this is human history. Now we're just walking along the edge. We're just walking along the edge. And at any moment... God could say, now is the time. In fact, the early church lived with this anticipation that Jesus could return at any moment whatsoever. In fact, Jesus told parable after parable after parable, and he said, this is how you should live your life. You're right on the edge. You're right on the edge. Be expectant of my return. This is new revelation for Israel, because the sign of the coming of Messiah is the Spirit of God. And Peter says, The sign of the Spirit is the sign of the coming of Messiah. That's what you see in here. These men aren't drunk. This is Joel chapter 2. It's the beginning of Joel chapter 2. The outpouring of God's Spirit on mankind. So this is new revelation for Israel and really for the world. Second, it's a new form of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, if you'll let me just get theological for just a minute. Because not all Christians agree on this point. Not everyone believes that the church began on the day of Pentecost. So I want to tell you why I think the church began on the day of Pentecost and why I think it matters at all. So let's start in Matthew chapter 16. It says, Peter replied, you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the son of God. You're God's king who's going to establish God's kingdom on earth. You are the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You are Peter. Peter, you're not the rock. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, this confession, you're small rock, Petros. 
But the big rock, Petros, is who I am. It's this confession you have made about the fact that I'm the foundation of the church. And notice, it's future tense. I will build my church. I haven't built my church yet, but I will. In other words, when Jesus spoke these words, the church didn't exist yet. Some think that the church existed in the Old Testament. So Israel was the church in the Old Testament, and we are Israel in the New Testament. Right? Israel was the church, and now we have taken the place of Israel. We're the new Israel. We're the church, but we're also Israel. And that the two are one. And what I'm arguing is, no, they're, they're different. They're distinct. And God has worked in Israel and in the church in different ways. And so the church itself didn't exist in the Old Testament. It begins to exist on this day. As Jesus says, that's future tense. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. The work of the spirit is to place you into the body of Christ that is the church. But the spirit didn't begin this ministry until he came on the day of Pentecost. John chapter 7, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit hadn't been given yet in this way, in this manner. The Spirit hadn't begun this work yet. That was yet future. That's why Paul calls the church a mystery in Ephesians 3. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What is a mystery? Paul says a mystery is something that wasn't revealed before, but now has been revealed. So when you pick up your Old Testament, you can't read about the church. You read about Israel and what God did through Israel. And how God was bringing salvation, not just to Israel, but through Israel to the world. And this is a new form. That's what Ephesians 2 and 3 is about. We're going to talk about it as we get into Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15. The nature of the church is different. God always intended to include Gentiles, okay, non-Jews, people like most of us. But that they would come in equally and they wouldn't have to come in under the law. But the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile would be broken down. And that they would be indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That was a mystery. Okay. Why is that important? Is the third reason. This is a new work of the Spirit. It's a different work of the Spirit. Read with me chapter 2, verse 17. Quoting Joel, he says, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I will pour out my Spirit on all of mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they will prophesy. Notice what he says. In those last days, everyone will have the spirit of God. No distinction between male and female, between young and old. Even my slaves, male slaves, female slaves, everyone will possess the spirit. Unlike in the Old Testament where the spirit would come upon a few and then might depart. Come upon a few for the purpose of some form of empowering and then would depart. Instead, the Spirit will come upon all. That means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are indwelt by the Spirit. 
The moment that you believe, God's spirit baptized you into Christ, meaning he put you into Jesus Christ and he put Christ into you and you are now indwelt by the spirit and you are indwelt permanently. The spirit will never, ever, ever leave you, ever, ever. That's a new work of the spirit. Remember when I was in college, we used to sing a song by uh, Keith Green, and I loved this song. I loved it. It was a great song. It was based on Psalm 51. And one of the lines goes like this, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, e-e-e-e. You know, and we, oh man, I just love that song. It was such a great song. I'm singing it out, and then one day I realized, wait, that doesn't apply to me. Because God will never take his Spirit from me. Because the Spirit was operating differently in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. It was such a sad day to lose that song. But what a great day to know that I can't lose the Spirit, right? Oh man, okay, I'll surrender. I surrender all, even that song. I'll give it up. Because I know the Spirit will not leave me. All of you have the Spirit. And all of you have the Spirit forever if you believed in Jesus Christ. And all of you have all of the Spirit that you need. You can't get more of the Spirit. Peter himself said, 2 Peter chapter chapter 1, said, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that you need to become a different person, God has given you. What you need is to give more of yourself to the Spirit. You need to surrender more of who you are to the Spirit rather than reaching out saying, oh, I need to get more of the Spirit into me. You have it right now. You have all of the Spirit that you can get and all of the Spirit that you need. Would you like to be more joyful? No, 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 I got plenty of joy. I don't need that. Would you like to be more patient? No, I'm just I'm too patient. I'm just too patient. No more of that, right? You want to be more kind and loving? Would you like to be more courageous and bold in sharing your faith? You have the Spirit of God. You just have to say yes when the Spirit moves and Spirit speaks and Spirit directs. And every time you say no, it becomes harder to hear that whisper. So this morning, you need to say yes again. Yes. See, the real miracle here, yeah, I mean, tongues was dramatic. It was amazing. And the sound and the sight, that was all dramatic. But that was just to grab their attention and to validate the message that's about to be delivered Because the real miracle on this day is the transformation of these people's lives. Peter, the apostle, the people who are listening, the real miracle on this day is the transformation, changed lives in this moment. And the Spirit directs all of their attention to the message that he has validated. And it's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read with me in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. First Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. 
When God wants to change us, he speaks. God wants to do something dramatic and powerful, he speaks. Began in Genesis, God spoke. And there was nothing, and then there was something. And then that something was shaped into something beautiful and wonderful. That's the power of the word of God. Peter says, it's God's word that has taken you out of death into life. And the word that is so powerful is so incredibly simple. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is this. First, Jesus lived. Jesus was real. Jesus was a historical person. Jesus was God in human flesh. Verse 22. Let's read it again. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, validated to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. These are people who have been gathered together. They probably stayed, most of them, from Passover all the way through Pentecost. And so they had seen not just the crucifixion, but they had seen miracles and they heard heard, heard stories. And Peter says, tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) I saw it, you saw it. I heard it, you heard it. He was real. Jesus is real. Second, Jesus died. Verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. This uh, verse is worthy of a series of sermons. (laughs) This verse is amazing. Because what Peter does is he lays side by side the absolute and utter sovereignty and foreknowledge of God and the complete responsibility of man. And then he moves on to the next sentence. He doesn't explain it. He says this was God's plan. God's plan was that you would put his son to death. God's plan was that he would transfer all of the debt of sin onto his son. His son would pay for your sin But you're responsible, and it's emphatic. It says, you, having crucified him, you put him to death. You did it by the hands of godless men. You used the Romans, but you are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. God says the same thing to us. So are the Calvinists right or are the Arminians right? Yes. No. They're right and wrong. It's right for the Calvinists to emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God and his foreknowledge of all things. God is the king of the universe. It's wrong to diminish the responsibility of man and the reality of choices with consequences. Don't diminish that. Armenians are right to emphasize that we have choices, real choices, because we're made in the image of God, but wrong to diminish the foreknowledge of God. Peter is right. Let's stick with him. He says, this was the foreordained plan of the sovereign God that you would put his son to death and you're responsible and we're responsible because it was our sins and their sins that Jesus bore on the cross and he really died. He really lived. He really died and he really was raised. Verse 24, God raised him and notice I I, I said he was raised. He didn't raise himself. God raised him. Thus validating that God had accepted the sacrifice that he had made for human sin. God raised him, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And now he quotes from Psalm 16, David's psalm. 
says, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. And Peter could literally be standing in the old city of Jerusalem when it was pretty small and he could say, I can tell you for sure, David's right there. We could actually move the first church service right over next to David's tomb. And if we wanted to get crazy, we could break through the wall and pull up his bones. David died. So who was David talking about? It says, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh decay to this, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And the apostle Paul will say, this is the foundation of of the faith of the church. And if there is no resurrection, our faith is useless and empty and void. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die and it's all over. But Jesus was raised. And that is the heart of the gospel message. Fourth, Jesus reigns. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who has ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's sitting at the right hand of God until God says, Now it's time to go back, and I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He will return. He reigns now, but he will return. And men and women, this is the essence of the gospel message. Isn't that simple? It is so simple. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus reigns. And Peter will add in later sermons, he will return. And he will finish what he started and he will set all things right. That is the simple gospel message. And all that you have to do is believe. And the moment you should believe You enter into the life of Christ. You become part of the body of Christ, the church. You have eternal life. You cannot lose it. The Spirit of God indwells you and indwells you forever. You belong to God. And if you are new here, one of the things you're going to begin to observe is every Sunday, I present the gospel. Thank you. It's got to be Carl. Thanks, Carl. Every Sunday. So I promise you, if you bring a friend who doesn't know Jesus, every Sunday I'm going to present the gospel. Every Sunday, you can trust the simple gospel message is going to work its way in. Somehow, it just finds its way into every passage in Scripture. Why? Because the Word of God is powerful. Right? When the Spirit of God speaks the Word of God and the gospel message through the people of God, miracles happen. Happen on Pentecost, happens here. I tell you, every semester, I get a phone call, I get an email, I get somebody walking up to me saying, I was sitting in the, in the sermon, and you know, it, at just some moment, it just all clicked, it all made sense. You know what, that's the Spirit of God. It's, it's, it has nothing whatsoever to do with me. Frequently, I'll hear believers even come up and say, you know, when you said such and such, God's Spirit spoke to me, and I made this decision, I say to myself, that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> I didn't say that. God's Spirit spoke. So even this morning, I was just trying to tighten things up. I thought, you know, this message just, it just doesn't feel like it's really coming together. 
man, I need to think more about it. I need to do this. And all of a sudden, I think the spirit spoke to me and said, why don't you just pray? Right? You're talking about Acts chapter two, for heaven's sake, please. Can you not trust that the spirit of God will speak to his people the word that he wants to speak and that it will be powerful? Because God is at work in God's people through his spirit. And God wants you to be changed today by his spirit. Men and women, God's spirit is at work. And we should not miss the miracles that occur in Acts chapter 2 or in our own lives. Remember, the biggest miracle is not what we often get distracted by, the speaking in tongues. The biggest miracle is that people are changed, they are transformed. Biggest miracle is this message God could take on human flesh, that's a miracle. I can't explain that. God could die, the eternal God could die, that's a miracle, I cannot explain that. God can overcome death by raising his son from the dead, that's a miracle. In fact, that's just crazy, that's outlandish. And if you start talking about that in your community, you are going to be branded as a fool. That is the most ridiculous, that it even matters That some man lived, some Jewish peasant man lived 2,000 years ago and you really believe that he was God in human flesh and that he he was actually raised from the dead? You really believe all that? That is a foolish message. You know what? It was also foolish in the first century. And they were mocked and they were scourged and they were stoned and some of them were crucified. That's the second greatest miracle in Acts chapter 2 is the transformation of the messengers. They went from fearful and cowering bold and courageous, even to the point of laying down their lives for the truth of the gospel. Peter ran and denied Christ, and now he's standing up in the midst of all of these Jewish men and women, and he is saying, no, it's true. Jesus is real. And as we will see in the subsequent chapters, he is willing to suffer because he believes it. That is a a complete and utter transformation. Third miracle is the response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? God's Spirit convicted them deeply of sin. Next week we'll talk more about their response. What we see here is a, a miracle. 3,000 people were added on that day. The the church went from 120 to 3,120. That's 2,600% growth. (laughs) Wow, wouldn't that be a great day? We better get a little more aggressive in planting churches. 2,600% growth. And then every day, more and more. And then a several thousand more. And men and women, the spirit that was working in Acts chapter 2 is the same spirit that's working today. Do you believe that? Do Do you believe that God's spirit can work in your life and through your life like that today. If I could ask the men to go back and and prepare communion for us, I want you to to, um, think about your response today. Maybe God's Spirit is speaking a word of conviction to you. You say, you know what, I need to believe. I, I am. I am a sinner. It's my sins also that Jesus paid for when he was on the cross. And maybe for the first time you need to believe that Jesus died for you. You need to just call out, God, I believe. Thank you for Jesus. Maybe God's Spirit's word to you today is hope that your life can be different, it can be changed 
because you possess the spirit of the living God. Maybe God's word to you today is that you need to have courage and confidence. Even though the message is foolish, it's true. So as the men come forward, I'd ask you just to take a few moments and ask God's spirit to speak a word, whatever that word is, directly to you, whether it's conviction or courage or hope. Ask God's spirit to speak to you, and then after we're served, we'll take the elements together. The men come forward, please. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and he broke the bread in front of his disciples, and he said, this bread is my body, my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Same way he took the cup, also after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed for us. Thank you, Father, that Jesus did not stay in the grave, but you raised him, demonstrating that you have accepted his payment and giving him the right to send his spirit to change us and transform us. Father, we are grateful for that. We want to be people who listen to the voice of your spirit. Father, we are reminded that this message of the gospel is it's our beginning. This movement of the Spirit speaking out through your people gave birth to the church. And we're reminded, Father, that, that you alone, through the power of your Spirit, can change lives. And we, we pray, Father, you do that in us. Pray, Father, that uh, we would be bold and we would be courageous uh, to ask you to do more in our lives. We'd not be satisfied with where we are right now. We'd be expectant the work of your spirit in our midst. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy God's work through his spirit in your lives this week. We'll see you next week.